This podcast is brought to you by the University of Pretoria, a world of answers. In this episode, we look at retaining biodiversity when it comes to our wildlife. Have you ever wondered what the significance of animal welfare is? What happens when animals become extinct and why we need to even have a conversation before getting to that point? Well, joining me today are two esteemed academics in their own right, Professor Robin Crewe, former Vice Principal of the University of Pretoria and a member of the Social Insects Research Group uh, in the Department of Zoology and Entomology at the institution, and Professor Andre Gunsvit, who is Director uh, of Mammal Research Institute at the University of Pretoria. Professors, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Aubrey. So let me start with you, Professor Gunswit. <laughs> um, that's the German way of saying it, by the way. Hey, yes. Gunswit. Right. So l- let me start with you. Why should we be having the conversation about conservation? And understand where my question comes from. Many people would argue that conservation, animal welfare, nature conservation is an elitist conversation for people that are well-heeled, maybe even the middle class. Why should we be having that conversation? Well, maybe to start off with, I think we would have to disentangle our view of why we are talking about us and nature instead of seeing us as part of nature. And if we would engage with that view, I think it's an obvious uh, point to to raise that if we are part of something which might be under threat um, we have to look after it so you raise a very important point to say that we have a very uh, detached relationship with nature uh, and that's why we even have the question that says us and it uh, we don't have a an integrated relationship with nature and that in itself is something that we need to interrogate is what you say exactly well uh, professor crew who are we and what is nature well i mean i think that's a very interesting question because we we tend to think about nature as things that are found in nature reserves rather than the things that are around us in the city or the things that are present on our farms. So nature is really a continuum. It doesn't matter where you are. You actually are embedded in nature, um, especially in the middle of the night when you wake up and find there's some mosquitoes in your, in your bedroom. That's part of nature. And, and what we need to do is we need to understand that continuum from wherever we happen to live, whether we happen to live in a rural setting or in the city, and or whether we enjoy visiting nature which is relatively unchanged, which is what we have it in, in the nature reserves. So I think, I think we've got to appreciate that to realize that we actually are part of nature. Yeah, yeah. Then what is it that we should be thinking about conserving, Dr. Hansvit? Um Well, the discussion often goes around that we have to look after biodiversity. And by reducing that, we are challenging nature. Um, and the discussion then uh, maybe also thrives 
in a direction that we destroying our planet, which should be a question to be challenged as well, because I don't see that we're actually destroying the planet. What we are doing is we are trying our best to make that planet more challenging for us to live in. Now, how do I disabuse myself, even as we have this conversation, of the idea that uh, we've got to have a human-centric conversation about nature? Um, because, yes, you know, even as we speak, I'm already realizing that all of my question, questions are about uh, how do I use nature? How do we as human beings use nature? Integrate me. Liberate me from my compartment thinking how do I become part of this thing instead of being separate to it even in my own mind uh, well I, I mean I think that the, that all of us have a have a human centric view um, of how we interact with the world um, so I don't think that's that's in any way unique but I think that what we need to do is given that that human centric view, we need to begin to understand the dynamics of of what is happening in the world outside of us. Um, I mean, if if you go back a few centuries, so when large proportions of the the human population were living in rural areas, I think there was much less of a separation between societies and the nature in which they lived, because they were critically dependent. Um, on that, that nature for survival. And if there was a drought or if there was a very, very hard winter or something like that, its immediate impact uh, was the production of famines and an impact on people's lives. I think that what's happened with modern agriculture is that in, in a certain sense we've buffered ourselves from that. But the, reali the, the reality is still there. Um, and so I think what we need to do is to understand that a lot of our behavior is human-centric, but it's still embedded in that interaction with nature, and that we need to understand that we need to uh, to protect those natural resources um, in, in order for us to actually survive. Um, so, for instance, it's entirely possible that humans... Uh, might go extinct, just as woolly mammoths have gone extinct. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that a whole range of other organisms won't go on and survive. So the world will change radically in, in the way in which it's, it's organized uh, biologically. But if we want to survive, we've got to understand how what we are doing is impacting on on that larger world in which which we're living and what we should be doing to try and minimize that impact and make sure that that the um, the world remains sustainable. Sorry, I mean, a, sorry, sorry, a, a good example a good example which which is a, is a passion of mine is is bees. Um, bees are critical for food security. If there was something that had a significant impact on the population of of bees, it would have a very significant impact on the availability uh, uh, of you, food for humans. There is, I suppose, a, a philosophy, an approach to the idea of conservation that says, uh, and I'm taking my cue from uh, Professor 
Crew's words, uh, Dr. Gunsford, where he said that they are winners and losers. And the extent to which there will be winners and losers varies. So there are animals who lose to the extent that they become extinct. Yeah, they disappear completely. Um, and there is an, uh, an approach to conservation that says we need to prevent that, right? Tell me about that. Okay, um, maybe to, to give it a bit more of a broader background sure. coming. And you started off with that, that humanized-centric view of the matter. And yep. um, when it comes to conservation or protection of environment, yep. um, I think a, a large proportion of people will agree that they feel relieved, refreshed, if they are close to the ocean when they experience the ocean, when they are in the deep forest. Yes. So when they becoming closer to what we, and we actually came up with a, a new definition, or we, we, we changed the definition, closer to nature, yes. what we think as natural yes. environment. So this is what we want to protect. So then another characteristic of humans... But that, that's, that's again a human um, perspective, perspective. Yeah, perspective. sure, yeah. Another um, thing humans like to do is giving it, putting things into boxes. So we are not referring to, to wildlife, we are referring to natural wildlife, urban wildlife, natural spaces, endemic species, invasive species, exotic species. To start different labels, yeah, sure. And in our world now, as we're trying to unpack just now, it becomes very blurry of where do you, and a lot of the answers you will give if this is a right approach or wrong will be an emotional one, not necessarily one which is built on facts. So if we're taking about the protection of a species and we say we want to categorize by being either in an exotic species or a native one, where are we starting off with that? Yeah. So we have the elephant in South Africa, which is a native species. We have the Himalayan tar in Cape Town since the, I think, 1850s, something about. So they're an exotic species. We have the European rabbit since 1630. So um, where we draw the line? When it becomes a natural endemic species, when is an exotic one? And in terms of protection, which measures we want to take? If we want to preserve a certain species for whatever reason, are we trying to fence them off? Yes. Are we trying to bring them somewhere else? Because their current environment is not the place where they maybe can sustain, but then we're making them invasive. Yeah, we're making yeah. them exotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so uh, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought, Prof, uh, uh, because we need to go uh, to a break, uh, and and I'm going to continue on that conversation, and I'll bring in the star of the show in South Africa's converse, con, uh, conservation conversation, uh, the rhino. Uh, and, and perhaps that'll help me understand uh, some of the concepts that you're bringing out into that conversation. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I also want to talk about conversations that sometimes
sometimes get a little bit controversial uh, about the de-extinction of certain species or uh, or the stopping of the extinction of certain species and the uh, morality and ethics that are associated with that. I really am looking forward to that. You are listening to a World of Answers podcast. The University of Pretoria can help you achieve your true potential. As a UP graduate, you are invited to join the university's prestigious alumni network. Download the new UP Alumni Connect app, which is designed to help you expand your network, advance your career and gain access to exclusive opportunities. You can also stay in touch with fellow alumni and be part of a community of change makers. Search for Graduate Community on Google Play or the App Store and let your degree take you further. University of Pretoria, discover a world of answers. Visit up.co.za. You are listening to a World of Answers podcast. We continue with our conversation. My guests in the studio are Professor Robin Kroof and Professor Andre Gunsford. Uh, Professor Gunsford, we were, before the break, talking about the fact that uh, there is a, a love by human beings to taxonomize, to categorize things. And uh, that sometimes inspires the policies of how we then deal with the operations of the way that we um, handle conservation. And you made a very, very powerful point to say that if we are going to say that one species is exotic and one another is local or what what was the word you use? Exotic and versus indi- indigenous or endemic. Or, yeah. yeah. Hmm. That we run into the problem of making one species exotic in one area and one and the same species may be endemic in another. And then what happens there? What then should be the approach? That's a very complex question yep. to ask. Um, I think it is a it is a question of dimension you're approaching here. And in my personal view, everything below a global approach seems to be narrow focused. And um, it becomes for me quite challenging to say we have a locally threatened species whereas on a global scale that species is doing quite well. Mm. Um, And then what is the motive behind putting resources into helping that particular species and that particular place in the world to increase their numbers whereas if you have another species which is challenged on a global scale needs help left, right and center. Yeah. Mm. And we should maybe rather focus on that. However, humans act by looking through human eyes, which means they found a certain species more appealing than another for various reasons. And you will get more support on different levels if you want to help a species which is more likeful, popular, seen by people than another. Well, let me me go back to Professor uh, Crewe then with your bees, right? And and then we'll bring in the, the rhino. So indeed, for the human purpose, if bees were to be extinct, 
And I, and, I, and I understand that it wouldn't just be human beings that suffer if bees were to be extinct. But for the human purpose, bees become very sexy in the conversation. And as Professor Gunsvet has said, we would then pump all sorts of resources in wanting to protect the bee specifically. Uh, and as I say this, please think rhino too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is the focus on one species perhaps not the fault of human-centric um, focus as we talk about conservation, protection, welfare, management. Is the human species not being selfish in the sense that when we want to just protect the bee, we then um, take away from something else, if, you, if, if that makes sense to you. And I want you to think also about the rhino in the conversation about the rhino. I mean, just outside our building here, there are billboards about how much money you can pledge to uh, supporting the effort to, f- to, to helping the rhino um, not go extinct. Are we not by giving to one, taking from another, and therefore messing up the balance, as it were, when we think from that human perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there are um, uh, interesting lessons to draw from those two examples. I mean, the rhino is a charismatic species. Um, part of the big at, five. At yeah? Part of the big five, and it's involved in a whole lot of illegal trade issues. Uh, and so that's why there's a, a, a clear focus on it um, from a conservation point of view. But, uh, I mean, I think there's a larger question in relation to to focusing on the rhino because if you want to conserve the rhinos, then what you have to do is you have to conserve an entire habitat in which they live. And uh, that, that conversation is not being had. Well, that, that conversation is being had, but not at the level uh, of the, the charismatic discussions yeah. about rhinos. That's being had at the level of, of the operations. Yeah. In, in the case of the honeybees, it's different. There we, there we have a specific self-interest. Um, uh, humans have had a relationship with honeybees uh, for their entire evolutionary sure. history. And it has all sorts of cultural and, and other significance for a lot of people. So one of the reasons for preserving honeybees is uh, they, uh, that they're thinking about all of those cultural issues um, f- that, that, that make them want to protect those bees in order to continue with those cultural ideas. That's the one aspect of it. The other thing is it produces products that we can, that we like and we can use and we can sell. And the third thing is recently with the development of in, industrialized agriculture, um, honeybees are actually critical to food production. And as the population grows, um, in order to ensure that, that food production is sustained, you need to have a sustainable population of honeybees to provide for that food. And to wind back to the conversation area, if the, if the honeybees are not just involved in food production, they're also involved in structuring plant communities. So they pollinate a whole lot of plants. 
in, in the natural environments. Yeah. And if you take them out, then those plant communities start changing because the reproduction of the plants is affected. So, that, you know, that gives you, in the case of the honeybees, it's pure self-interest. Yeah. In the case of the, uh, of the rhinos, it has to do with a, a, a sense of we need to preserve things that we've got and not lose them permanently. Yeah. yeah. Now, now th- that, that conversation about the rhino specifically, we need to preserve this species, let's not lose it so that uh, future generations can be able to witness it. Is that consistent with the way that nature just naturally evolves? In other words, there are even before the advent of human beings, Prof, um, species that were and then got extinct. Uh, Is the rhino and all of the pressures that are brought to bear on its very existence not a part of the natural course of things? And if we are going to um, try and protect the rhino so that our uh, future generations can be able to see them and love them and uh, be there, the big five. Is that not a disturbing of the way that nature naturally rolls through time? So in other words, I'm the saying, wh- wh- why, why, why don't we allow the rhino to go off into the sunset? Yes, um, um, you know? I, I, I hear what yeah. you're asking. And the question is how we position ourselves in that question. So the one extreme point could be, yes, we can utilize the rhino for whatever reason. Do it. We have the power. Yep. And the counter argument could be, let it protect, because we have the power. Yep. And the question is where you put yourself into that system to yep. see what is better or worse for the system. To protect something which has no value for you is very difficult to sell. But to define value is a very complex question. Sure. Mm. Some people just get value out of that by being able to experience a certain creature. Others, as Professor Cruz said, has a direct link to our food production and sustainability of our species. We haven't even touched on the spiritual, religious role of certain species Mm. and what that means. Mm. Which is a very big part of the African um, relationship with certain animals. Uh, Absolutely, absolutely, sure. Yeah, Mm. yeah. So, and if I'm now drawing an argument on that, I'm drawing that out of my personal mm. experience and my worldview, which maybe makes one argument for a certain listener very strong and for another totally weak. Very, so very important. So that holistic view on that question, should we protect or not, needs to be asked by everybody themselves. Yeah and see if the answer is yes or no for a particular. Which brings me then to the issue of the schools of thought for how we manage the protection, the preservation of certain uh, natural resources, whether they be rhinos, bees, mountains, the feinbos, whatever the case may be. There is an approach that says, let's keep the pristineness of that particular um, life form. 
In fact, we should keep humans away from it completely so that it is untouched by the, by the diseased hands of human beings, right? Um, there's that approach. And then there's the approach that is very utilitarian, that is, once again, humanocentric, right? Uh, and I'm thinking here about where people say, okay, if we want to preserve the rhino, for example, why don't we create ranches? You know, let's farm the rhino. Let's just keep it. And then, of course, there are those that said, but that's not the right um, habitat. It's, it's, it's wrong. That's not how you should be handling things. So it appears to me that it goes back to where we locate ourselves as human beings in that conversation and what we place value on. Mm. But I want to bring the conversation that is brewing in these circles about if we want to preserve something, if we want to, to bring something back, in fact, that has been extinct. I'm thinking here about the dodo. Uh, I'm thinking here about the quacha. Yeah? These are animals that are now extinct. And some argue that in order for us to regain the ecosystem that was lost. Part of what needs to happen is we need to de-extinct some of these animals, like the dodo, like the, like the quacha, for example, and you could go even further back in the existence of certain animals. Mm. What is your position on that, Professor Krug? Well, uh, I mean, I think my, my first question is whether it's possible. Uh, oh, Jurassic I, Park says it is. Uh, well, I could... Uh, mentioned things about Jurassic Park. Um, I mean, they were alleged to have got the DNA from a mosquito in a piece of amber um, and recreated uh, the dinosaur from that. Uh, there's, there's no usable DNA in any of the material that's preserved in amber. Are you saying the Jurassic Park is a whole scam? It's not true? It's, it's, a, it's a wonderfully inventive idea, but I'm afraid it, it, it runs into the reality um, of science, which is that it couldn't have happened. Um, but, I mean, I think that the, there's another issue that's, that's related to this, um, and, and that is that rather than expend energy on, on trying to recreate um, some charismatic species. It's much more profitable to look at what are we doing at the moment um, to the organisms the, that exist with us at the moment, and are we creating an accelerated rate of extinction? Um, and if we are, that's a threat to our existence. And so the real question is, what can we do um, to try and slow down the rate of extinction? Let me just give you a very quick example, and, and I have to go back to the bees. In, in this country, there are over 2,000 species of bees. We know that, that a number of those species are going extinct, and they're going extinct because of changing land use and the use of, of pesticides. So the real question, rather than saying, can we bring the kocha back, is what can we do in the environments over which we have control now to prevent the, the, the rapid extinction of a whole range of species? And that, for me, is a much more profitable question. Professor Crewe, as we close, are authorities in the world, and I make specific reference to what's happening in the Amazon and the fires that are ravaging mm -hmm. uh, the, that particular resource, that global resource, are authorities here and everywhere else understanding the need for us to be more global? 
less self-centric. Not from a moralistic or, or, or philosophical point of view, but from a really utilitarian point of view, as you've explained earlier on, that it's actually about our survival. Is there that awareness and does it go far enough, do you think? Well, I mean, I think that, that we, we've got some good examples. Brazil is one example. Um, and the second example, of course, is the American president um, who doesn't have an appreciation for climate change yeah. and the particular impacts that that's going to have. So I think the argument that Professor Gonsrewind was making was, was that the two sides have to respect their expertise and their interests and they have to have a true dialogue. If you simply reject the evidence which is put before you and, and not take it seriously, then I'm afraid you're never going to find a solution to these problems. So I think that it's, it's where a respectful dialogue between the two uh, parties takes place um, is that you actually achieve some kind of solution. And in some countries that, that, uh, that happens quite successfully. Um, and in other countries... It isn't currently happening um, successfully. And these things change with personalities. So I think that's the, that's the other thing you have to understand is that it, some of this is personality-driven, but you never give up the discussion. Yeah. yeah. Well, Professor Robin Crew, former vice principal of the University of Pretoria and a member of the Social Insects Research Group uh, in the Department of Zoology and Entomology at the University of Pretoria, and Professor Andre Gunsvid, who is Director of Mammal Research Institute at the University of Pretoria. I want to thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining us. And this has been a very, very fruitful conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Audrey. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Pretoria, a world of answers.